Welcome back to March Mad Men, the show that sets out to select the greatest haunted house film ever made. Here's another matchup of movies for your listening pleasure. Hope you enjoy. And that takes us to our next matchup, our number two seed, right after The Shining, Lake Mungo, 2009. It made, uh, according to... Box office uh, mojo. It made about eight thousand dollars at the at the box office, which is mind blowing. I mean, like, there's movies during coronavirus making eight thousand dollars at the box office. But putting that aside, uh, it's had a good life on um, streaming and uh, home entertainment uh, outlets. I'm sure. I have a lot more to say after watching it again, so I'm excited to discuss it with you guys. Let's start out with the highlight sequence of Lake Mungo. I really am struck by what a evenly paced, consistently rewarding, and I, I mean that in the sense that, like, over the course of the film, I feel like it does just keep kind of giving you, you know, new and, and varied and unexpected layers throughout the course of the film. It, it is an unlikely choice to sort of be in this number two position. But I, for one, feel like it, it earns it. So, um, so sorry, with that opening salvo, the moment that I chose as a highlight is a bit squarely in the middle of the film. It's at the point where we understand that this family believes that, that their, their daughter who passed away in a drowning incident um, has been haunting their house. They had set up videos. The videos were seemingly capturing visions of their daughter or visitations from their, by their daughter's ghost. It's then revealed that they, they weren't actually the daughter, but it was actually the family's son who is still alive and is just sort of like kind of like walking in, in her shoes still and making these videos. But the part that really stood out to me is the moment where the mother realizes the ghost, which is not a ghost, but, but the son playing dress up, is not the only figure in the in the tape. And that if she looks into another corner of the tape, there is another face. And that face isn't a ghost. It's the face of their neighbor. And she chases that story to uncover the next layer of this of this tale, which is to find out that the daughter was having an affair with with that neighbor and his wife and that the neighbor was, was had broken into their house and was accidentally caught on camera trying to find the tape and destroy it. There's a few reasons why this beat stood out to me. Not only is it, is it just sort of a chilling moment, the way in which they reveal the face really puts you on the edge of your seat for a moment while you're waiting to understand what it is that you're seeing but it's also a moment where this movie does what this movie does well, which is it turns the entire story that you thought you were watching on its head. And suddenly you don't know what this is anymore. You thought it was a ghost story, then it turns out it wasn't. Then you thought it was a ghost story again, then it turns out it isn't. And it both is and it isn't. Like It's both taking you deeper into the ghost story of this daughter, but it's also getting to what I think this movie is really about, which is – it's a movie that is talking about how death can teach people about their own relationships with each other. And in this case, it's really like setting into motion this, this guilt that – or not setting into motion, but it is continuing to explore this frayed 
mother-daughter relationship that's at the core of this movie where the mom is realizing that her daughter had a separate life from her and she wasn't just the girl that she thought she was. And it's also a key piece in a movie that I think expertly builds the character of the ghost, which in this case is, is Alice. I think this film does an amazing job of never just dumping a real character moment. There's no flashback scene. There's never a beat where you really get to know Alice. You just get it piece by piece by piece by piece the entire running time. And this is a big reveal that doesn't even feature her, but still tells you worlds about who she was at the time of her death. It's just a really clever piece of storytelling and creepy. Did that affair start after the events at Lake Mungo? My initial thought was that I didn't particularly like that revelation. And that's one of my one of my notes and we'll we'll talk about it when we get to the lowlights. Some of it felt like a plot twist too many that they were trying to sort of keep the narrative moving forward while they were building up to the the ending that they finally sort of land on. But once I thought about it in terms of if this was a girl who was damaged by this thing that she had seen and was then reaching out in these weird ways to try and deal with what had happened, it started to make more sense and it started to work for me better on my on my most recent viewing. I don't I don't think it does that, Beck. I mean, I just watched it the other night too, and no. The movie does not suggest that she did that after the Lake Mungo experience. Yeah, yeah I can't say that I was given that impression now. Interesting. All right. Which is, you know, odd because what you're criticizing is is something that I noted as well, that the relationship with this couple, like she's 16 years old and she's having this bisexual threesome relationship with her neighbors uh, who are, you know, at least 10 to 15 years older than she is. I mean, that's a big fucking turn. How does that happen both in real life and just kind of narratively? And the movie just doesn't doesn't go into much uh, explanation other than the fact that her relationship with her mother is like her mother's relationship with her grandmother, which is just kind of they don't – there's a love missing or something, which I, th- I find really wild and – fascinating they can't connect on some level and it's extremely powerful at the ending and i think we'll get to that i don't know what to make of it but i will say that this movie is truly fascinating to me and this is a movie that i think does you know i was talking about it with uh tale of two sisters (laughs) that i i personally want to dig deeper into it and even though I'm not entirely convinced this is an actual horror movie. I still am not. Um, I still think psychologically this type of stuff that we would get into thinking about Alice and, you know, what this weird foreboding um, harbinger of doom represents that appears to her at Lake Mungo. And how that ties into her relationship to her mother and her relationship with this couple that she's having, you know, extremely inadvisable sex with. 
it's all like a, a really fascinating stew uh, that I would love to understand more fully. So I like the movie all the more, but I don't know what to tell you. That's <laughs> all I can say at this point. Yeah, I mean, your question is really interesting, Nick. I, I don't know. I guess my interpretation of the timeline was that the affair was happening prior to Lake Mungo, but that could just be a, a misunderstanding on on my part. It's not clear, I can tell you that. there's The movie is not trying to tell you that she hooks up with them after Lake Mungo. I can tell you that for sure. I knew a girl who actually like went through a very similar experience and got like wrapped up in the life of a married, of an older married couple and I've always, I always found that I didn't like press or like get very much detail on it. But even just in that brief conversation that I had with that that person, there was still like it was it was it was immediately apparent that that incident was part of something very personal and like dark, and in a way that I felt like they rendered very convincingly here, and so. I saw it as just being part of she was a very confused I'd love to like sit there and like try to like unpack this movie you know an additional time because I do think that there raises a lot of questions it's like I don't know is this a movie that's that's essentially about like suicide because you know, on one hand it does seem like a story of a young person who's becoming a little unraveled and who isn't quite sure who they are and isn't able to handle the the emotional complications of teenagehood and ultimately like kind of falls into a sort of like a, a supernatural version of, of, of self-destruction where they almost like manifest their own death. I mean, I, mm. I, I, I don't know. I'm not, mm. I'm not quite sure what it is. I feel like there's a, a few interpretations you could give to it. Well, Rich, I, mean, I think that's really interesting. Rich, I really want to stress that I want you to, I want you to reach out to that person, really get some details Bring that back when we when we when we dig into this movie further. <laughs> I would like that person to guest on our yeah. show. Yeah, that would be <laughs> ideal. <laughs> this movie would be lesser or less complex if they didn't put that element in, even though it's like kind of discordant or not entirely obviously connecting. I think it would be a little more hollow if we didn't have it. So I think that it's clearly a positive that, that, that she has, uh, Alice has that part of her backstory, but I agree that I don't know exactly what to do with it or how to understand it. I will say, and I'll get into this in low lights. I am not a hundred percent on board with the brother faking the footage or how the movie handles that part of it. Um, that's actually, that is my low light of the entire movie, uh, spoiler, but we'll get into that in, in, a, in a bit. My highlight, this is one of the things that happens in the third act, but I don't really feel like is the ending. Because I feel like that's, there, there's, a, there's some very specific stuff that we'll talk about. God one damn it, Vic, don't ruin the ending. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not ruining the ending. One of the revelations that we get is that the daughter had been speaking to the the psychic that the yeah. family winds up consulting. And so he has these tapes of her talking about stuff. Ray. And one, yes, Ray. One of the things just generally about this movie, I can't remember if I said this when we talked about it before. This movie is what the movie White Noise wants to be. Yeah, you did like, say that. They use all of these uh, these effects to such 
to such great ends. And so in addition to all of the grainy video and all of the cell phone video and all of the great stuff that they get out of that, there's just a scene of the audio of the daughter talking about a dream where she's in her room and she sees her mom, but her mom can't see her. And the camera, especially because this has been done in such authentic documentary style, you get this great steady cam shot of the camera moving through the house and it's overlaid with that audio. And I just found every bit of that haunting and moving and they actually repeat that same footage uh, at least three times. Yeah. It's, it's really, but with the, with the audio overlay, I, I really found it moving emotionally. And I, and one of the things that I found really interesting when I was trying to come up with my highlights for this movie is I kept coming up with things and and I think that the ending is the big highlight, but that's the, that's the one we're sort of dancing around for, for these purposes. All the other highlights that I had weren't necessarily the scary scenes. Like it was a lot of it was the family dynamics and the emotion. And again, that particular moment, there was just something lyrical about it. The quality of the audio, because you're listening to, you know, essentially a, a cassette recording that was, I just found it all very effective and really brought the emotion, the longing and the, and the emptiness that sort of follows a death. And I felt like it brought all of that together into, into a moment. This movie has more than, more than many of the movies we're going to talk about. This movie has an emotional core that gets to you and makes the horror that's in there more effective. I, I agree with you a hundred percent, Vic. John, I'm interested to hear your defense, but like, I, I don't question that this is a horror movie. I, I guess I see where you're coming from, but even Vic just recapping that beat there gave me chills a little bit, just remembering that moment in a way that I haven't felt talking about The Shining or, or What Lies Beneath. Wow. I think that that emotional depth that this movie has gives it a power that most of the movies on our list lack. I, I would uh, call that a drama, but okay. Right. If you're terrified by that, I guess it's a horror movie. <laughs> I mean, it's a drama about... I love this movie, but... <laughs> to, me, to, me, to me, that's a beat about... I mean, I, 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 get, I, get what you're, I get what you're saying, but you're also talking about a drama where, at least the way that I read that scene, was it, it was a girl who was terrified because she had a dream that was essentially her yeah. understanding what it was going to be like to be dead and looking at her mother enter her room as a ghost. Like, if that's not part of a horror movie, I don't know what is. Well, I, I have my highlight sequence is the horror movie part of this movie, I believe, humbly. Neither of you guys have touched on it, but I'm going to now. And the other sequence that you guys keep bringing up, I, I consider the ending, and I'm going to talk about it when we talk about the ending. And I fucking love it. But I don't, you know, I don't find it scary. But this part I do. And this is the thing that makes this movie a horror movie, if anything does. It is when the waterlogged, several days dead version of Alice shows up on her own phone video. That's pretty rough, guys. Yep. This girl was, this 16-year-old girl is confronted by her own doppelganger as a harbinger of doom. 
how horrible would it be to see your own corpse, especially as a 16-year-old? Your strength, vitality, health, even the spark of life itself, it's all gone. Everything you are, it's now just a rotting husk. You have to look at it yourself, a death-corrupted shell that's no more alive than a compost heap. Especially for a young person, where your body is still flawless, seemingly eternal, immortal, indestructible. She's fucking 16. She's nearing the absolute zenith of her powers, especially as a female. I, I just, I can imagine what that precognition would do to a person. It's unbelievably disturbing. And the way that the film depicts it, and the, you know, the image of this the space and you know the design of of the corpse it's all that is that is the horror movie part of this movie it's that fucking corpse and how and when it shows up everything else in this movie is not a horror movie we could argue versus the others or something does anything involving a ghost have to be a or the movie ghost for example have to be a horror movie i say no i say no And I say the other elements of ghost stuff in this movie are not a horror movie. But that fucking corpse and how and when it shows up are what make this a horror movie. And yes, I'm not saying, like, we need to disqualify the movie. It's not a horror movie. It is a horror movie. It's in its own sort of borderline kind of a place. But this is what puts it where where it is, and this is why we're talking about it, and it does scare the fuck out of me on some level, because I can understand what that would be like, and I understand what Alice did when she was confronted with this thing, and it is powerful. So, there you go. You're right in that it is certainly like the, the horror itself is punctuated in these very in. For you, for one very specific moment, I would argue it happens a, a little more often than that. But yeah, the movie's effect, and I think its desired effect, is to be chilling. And that is not what a drama aims to do. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise it would just merely be sad. But I mean, this movie is like 50% sad. Am I wrong? I mean, <laughs> it is. No, you're, I mean, 50% is like, you know, I, I like those odds. Like, I'm, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. I will say that ending, I will, I mean... We're not the ending first, yet. <laughs> that, you brought it up, John, okay? No, I didn't. <laughs> well, he said yeah. the end, he's yeah. seen the ending that you just described. Yes. <laughs> okay. The you just described with the, with the, that's, look, come on. That's it's, the climax of the movie. We can talk about the denouement later. <laughs> that scene when the, when the, when you see that image approach the, the cell phone footage. Hmm. Fro- froze me to my couch yeah. when I watched it. I was alone. And then everything that follows, it's right there with the guy in the corner at the end of the Blair Witch Project in terms of movie endings that yeah. made every hair on my body stand on end and left me a little uncomfortable turning out the light before I went to bed that night. And I'm not kidding. When I watched it the, the, the most recent time, I closed my eyes because I knew it was coming. 
and that doesn't happen very often. But Vic, you know, I, I totally respect that. And you know, it has that effect on me, but I think that the gist of the movie is more about both the dead and the living letting go and moving on. I'm not going to say this is touched by an angel, but like the overall, like what the filmmakers are wanting to leave us with is that, yeah, this is sad. This is tragic, but it's a happy, this movie has a happy ending. Am I wrong? I don't John. I really thought this was a movie about swinging. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a, it's a happy ending. It's a happy ending. (laughs) That's what she said. What? Uh, yes, I know the like, uh, happy ending. It's it certainly fits in that like bittersweet mold of the kind of film that you're talking about. It, you know, it, it fits alongside something like the orphanage. I think. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, or it, even Devil's it, Backbone. A happy ending would be if she wasn't dead. Right. But that, she's but she's very much dead. You're right. It, and and Devil's Backbone, I think, actually fits in that in that same. Mm-hmm. element it's not like this is manchester by the sea i take your guys point about uh ghost, ghost story. story sure uh, yeah. right ghost ghost story was was this without without any horror this this has enough i think to to qualify i get what you're saying that it's leaning but i mean look all of these movies to varying degrees i mean i'm glad you brought the others because to me that's a movie that you know was that that again was like it was an english drama Right. You know, with with some horror tropes attached to it. So, but no jump scares. By the way, no jump scares in The Shining either. Uh, I mean, but for what it's worth, well, were there any jump scares in this movie? No, none. I'm just, that's and, what I'm saying. My point is, is that this is a movie with no jump scares, but neither does The Shining have any jump scares. Well, that's uh, it. That might be the reason why it belongs so high on the list. Is this yeah. is a movie that really that really challenges what the conventions of the genre are and what it means to be a horror film. And the same way that when we, you know, again, we these are discussions that we've already had about movies like Carrie and The Sixth Sense, and I think that's going to continue to come up as we go through this process. But this movie really does it. it it's going to force us to have some really interesting discussions about what it means to be a horror film. Because to me, the, the, the fundamental element that makes a horror film is the presence of some kind of malignant force. But it's there is no malignant force in this movie. Is there? Because well, I, what does the... To the specter of her death, it could be considered a malignant force. Exactly. And I think that's the, that's the question that we, well, that guys, we will have to explore... Yeah, Next time. we will. We will. And I just want to say by, you know, virtue of a preamble to that conversation, I haven't looked it up yet, but this movie made me think I want to look into the idea of harbingers of doom and precognition because a lot of stories, obviously not necessarily a lot of haunted house movies, but a lot of stories in human history have involved the idea of someone getting some kind of precognition of their own doom. This is something that has actually been, you know, it's very traditional across cultures uh, in human history. And this movie is very much dealing with that. You know, the idea of what if you were just told you're going to die, what do you do then? As a small cult- cultural touchstone, I just wanted to throw out that 
the scene that Vic was talking about with the tape recording immediately made me think of Le Jete, if anyone's has seen that, you know, the, you know, the, the short film, the 12 monkeys was based on, and that film, sorry, you've had time to see it. So, and this is a spoiler episode (laughs) ends with him having the realization that the, the, the person that he saw die as a young child was himself as a time traveler, but even just the way that that was presented and and the way that was all presented through audio felt like it, it sort of had like a spiritual cousin in here. Twelve monkeys is what I was going to bring up as well. So you were. I was. Really? I was. I was going to go La Jete because this isn't that kind of podcast, Rich. But dude, that is some film school shit right there. I do love La Jete, but it, see, see that, see Twelve Monkeys. Go check that shit out if you haven't seen it. Isn't there like a Twelve Monkeys series now? Okay. There was. Yeah. yeah. I think. Yeah, I think it came and went. I would have loved for that to be brilliant, but you know who knows. In any event, all right. So um, low light sequence, right? Isn't that where we are? Yeah, that's where we are. Okay, um, I'll kick it off. I'm just not sure, guys, how I feel about the twist that the sun was faking some of the images. I know, Rich, you've always thought that was a real strength of the movie, and I think I did too. But looking at the movie the last time. It doesn't feel that valuable to me because within minutes, if not seconds, we immediately undermine the twist. And the next development in the plot is we say, wait, no, here, actually, she's she's here again in the footage. And this time, it, it really is her. She, she, she is the ghost here. He didn't fake that. So what what's the point, really? Because, you know, we think the whole time that she's the ghost and she's in the footage and it's legit. And so for like a couple of minutes of the movie, we think it's all bullshit. And now we're like, well, all right, so what's now? What now is what we're thinking as an audience. And what now is, no, let's just keep looking at the same kind of footage and stills and she appears again, and she looks basically exactly the same as when he was faking it, but oh no, it's different now, she's real. So, I, don't get me wrong, I like the explanation of how he does it. It's clever. I, I like sort of that degree of reality of how you would fake something like this. It exposes that, and how you could make it convincing. But they abandon it so quickly and I don't think there's a dramatic or a narrative payoff to it. It doesn't necessarily advance the story. It's not like the son, you know, from that point, because he did this, he loses everyone's trust or he gets booted from the house for a while, or he has some kind of downward spiral, you know, or he brings like public vitriol down on the family because it was all a fraud. They kind of touch on that and they touch on him doing it, but then they kind of explain it and they move on from it and forget it. And then all of a sudden, like that, it's like we're immediately to, Oh, now, now we see her again in the footage, but this time it's legit. So I, I realize this isn't like a sequence per se, I feel like if I watch the movie again, I wonder if I'm going to be annoyed watching the shit that he fakes, like the first five or six ghost scenes, and, you know, being like fully aware that they're fake. I wonder like what effect that's going to have on me. That's my weak point of the film. That's what I'm going to call out. It definitely makes them less creepy once you once you know that. I think there's a lot of validity to what you're saying. It did also bother me that it's, 
like you said, the fallout from it is virtually non-existent. Everyone sort of like shrugs their shoulders. And I forget exactly what his explanation is to as to why he, he did it. But I give it a pass in, in the sense that I do think it fits into the larger story of the film, which is it being about people who are processing grief and trying to trying to deal with loss and doing it in some very strange ways. And it certainly is also setting up, you know, just a general storytelling technique that this movie is going to employ, which is to, to look at a piece of footage and then look at it again with fresh eyes and then look at it again with fresh eyes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to continually be discovering new things and finding some, some other layer in, in another dark corner which is ultimately like what this is about, right? This is about a yep. family who lost a child and sits there and, le- and is just re-examining what happened over and over again, like the Zapruder film, trying to understand, you know, where they went wrong in their daughter's life. And I agree that there's bits that, that are annoying in there, but they also don't feel wholly disconnected from the from the rest of the story. Well, to agree with you, I mean, I think that one of the points that I love the most about this movie is that it puts the clues up front and the stuff that we later see is there from the beginning. Like they show the final shot of the surviving family members at the very beginning. And you can actually see the ghost in the window just as as you see at the very end. When they first show the uh, figure moving through the hallway, you can see the guy's face, the living man who's in her bedroom, like that's available to you. And I do love that where the movie just like presents you with images and you can, if you're really watching all aspects of the frame, you can pick up the little clues and mysteries and it's, it's all there for you and then later it will pay off. And the movie absolutely does that. And it feels like very clever filmmaking. Like it doesn't even feel like it's sleight of hand. Mm -hmm. Like I don't, I don't, you don't watch it feel feeling like um, there was something else we watched. I can't remember if it was woman in black or there was some other movie that employed like a similar technique, but there was that feeling that they were definitely trying to distract you in one corner. I don't feel like this movie does that. It puts these admittedly, you know, muddy images like you said, they're 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 there. The information is there. It's just that you see what you want to see. In a sense, I guess that's part of the point of the film, right? But it's tremendously rewarding when you do notice something and you're like, "Hey, what is that?" And then yeah. narratively, it pays off a bit later. I didn't nail down a specific bad sequence, but rather that there there are sort of a, a series of of revelations right and so that's the first one is that the kid was faking the video footage and then you find out about the affair with the neighbor so it's again okay there's a face in there but it's still not a ghost it's actually somebody else and then you have the revelation about the psychic that she had been seeing the psychic and he had been kind of lying to the family from a storytelling perspective those three together are one too many i don't know which one i would pull i mean john you make a you make a good case for why the one with the kid doesn't work, although I think it's important to undermine the audience's belief that that, that you know that this is a ghost story at least at the at at that juncture. But you got to go more than like two minutes with it before you immediately snap back to oh here she is in the footage again and yes yeah. 
I, I agree. I guess I didn't necessarily buy that the, that Ray wouldn't just tell them, I saw your daughter. Like, he doesn't have to tell them anything more. The fact that he hides it makes it so it's, it, it just feels like trying, they're trying to wring some, some dramatic tension and revelations and stuff from the story that is otherwise just, as, as we've been saying, kind of this drama about this family dealing with the grief. Well, what you're referring to, in case anyone has forgotten, is the idea that the, the psychic, uh, it's revealed late in the film that the daughter, the dead deceased daughter that they're trying to commune with, had initially gone to him and uh, had been looking for his, his guidance and assistance. And the explanation that he gives is more or less he was protecting her confidentiality as a client. And that's why he didn't tell her family that he had already been doing his, his sessions with her. Vic, for, for what it's worth, and, and also just to kind of cut to the chase with it, that, 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 um, that is the low light that I put is that I felt like the, the twist that the, that Ray had been meeting with Alice to me, that was, as you put it, the, the twist too far. I didn't buy it. And furthermore, it also fell into that category of it, it did weirdly kind of get just swept under the rug when it seemed like a huge betrayal of trust for the family. It is the patient confidentiality thing, right? <laughs> I mean, no, <laughs> he's, he's not, a, he's not a doctor. And furthermore, he still reserved the right to just not help them. Well, he did also say like part of the reason was the part patient confidentiality. And the other was that he knew that they wouldn't let him help them. And he really wanted to help them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't pay him. Yeah. Well, no, he doesn't. <laughs> I don't think the movie is suggesting he's about the money. He takes the son on tour with him a little bit. Oh, there was a sequence, by the way, and I noticed this only the last time I saw the movie, where they're deciding who pays for breakfast, and, like, it gets a little contentious. And basically, like, one of them says, oh, I think it's your your treat. Uh, but they use, like, you know, the Australian version of that. And the other guy says, oh, no, it's yours. And I'm pretty sure it was the, the old guy was saying, no, kid, you're buying my fucking breakfast. It's hard for me to figure out which twist is the least. Isn't that hard? It's the fucking kid faking the shit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I would have to. I need to think about it some more to figure out how that changes the narrative. If you remove that, it changes the know. narrative almost zero. Other than like the first eight times we see the ghost out of ten or twelve, it's nothing, and then the other four times are are legit. Well, let's, well I'll tell you, you what. Let's use this. Can we use this to segue into the ending? Yes. What that does undermine is you have this incredibly shocking moment when you get the cell phone footage, and then you have just a brief denouement that, like, maybe sends you out not completely terrified, except that then over the credits, you have all the pictures and stuff that the brother took 
But now you see the fake thing that he did, and then they draw your attention to the real guy. I'm literally, guys, my, my, mm-hmm. my hair is standing on end while I'm talking about this. Now you see the real ghost that is also in all of that stuff. I have a little and, problem with that, though, in the backyard shot where she's, like, obviously standing 50 feet away from the, uh-huh. the fake version of her. And I just felt a little like, you know, maybe this is stupid or not fair, but I was just like, well, why didn't you deal with that the first time you talked about that that picture? There's two of her in, obviously, like, it's not like she's hard to see, but there's two of her in the same picture. It's very clear. Like, did nobody notice this the first time? I I can only say that I didn't notice it the first time. Well, I didn't either. But, I mean, I was almost thinking, like, is it cropped out? Obviously, we're going to watch this movie again. But, I mean... Are you really telling me that like she's she's right there on the right side of the frame and we just didn't see it? I, I don't know. Going back to, to the question of what do you gain or lose by having the brother actually fake these events and having that turn the plot, what that is doing is that is preventing the family from being able to connect with her memory and her and her spirit. What would have been a movie about a family who was really witnessing a haunting in their home becomes a family desperately searching for the haunting in their home. The revelation that the brother was faking these allowed them to not see what was really there that they were looking for the whole time. I mean, that's a little pat. Like, I take your point. Like, if they were pouring over these photographs over and over again, wouldn't they have seen the ghost? I mean, yeah, sure. Like, you you have a point, but like I'm still just like not willing to concede it because the way that they deployed is so effective. <laughs> I like that. I concede your point, but I do not concede your point. <laughs> I get it, and I I like this movie very much. I, I would just say that interpreting it from this perspective, I would say that one of the interesting things about this movie is that there are no demons. There are no powerful ghosts. The most powerful thing about this ghost is that they left the porch light on for her and she found her way home. She's not a massive generator of of spiritual energy. She can only, you know, kind of vaguely influence reality. This is not a movie about all the weird shit that she does in her house. Like they talk about, I heard things moving. For the most part, this is a really underpowered ghost. And I I don't mind that because she's just a normal girl. You know, it's not about somebody being, dying a horrible death and they're a vengeful spirit and even like uh, (laughs) Sir of Echoes or something. We're going to talk about all this again because this movie is moving on. But it's, do you guys like think about like what happened in that lake? She, she drowned, but why did she drown? You know, they never talk about, is she a bad swimmer? Did something yeah. happen? Like, it's why, an, why I mean, would she die? It's an intriguing, it's an intriguing mystery that they have. Like, I don't think that it was just like an oversight on the, on the writer's part. Like, I think it was very intentional that mm-hmm. they, that they don't dive into it. I don't feel like it's, it's a story about suicide, but I do feel like it's a story of someone whose, whose death was inevitable. Oh yeah. And 
it's almost that the point isn't how she died. It's that's irrelevant. It's that death was coming and it had a time and, and a place and, and it was going to happen regardless. But of- she didn't know when. Because, like, the video of her, like, they show a lot of video of her that same day at the place where she dies. And she's, you know, happy and carefree and having a good time. And, you know, yeah, these are not criticisms because I, I really believe that she knew that was going to be her, her her death, but she didn't know it could be 20 years from now. It's kind of fascinating that, like, I don't, I don't think it was a suicide in any way, shape, or form. It's... She pulled a hammy going reverse out with a married couple next door, and that's probably why she didn't get back to shore. Oh, Vic. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to say I was totally satisfied by the ending the first time I saw it, and then I didn't love it at all the second time when we first were vetting these movies. And then I appreciated it much more like the other night, uh, the third time. I think I got out of my expectation that this was a traditional horror movie. And the first time I saw it, because not knowing what was happening, it absolutely worked as a traditional horror movie. And then the second time, knowing where it goes, it didn't. And then the third time, we're almost at the level of like a Coen Brothers movie, like The Big Lebowski, where I just accept the movie on its own terms because I realize it's not what I thought I wanted and I don't need what I thought I wanted. That That's, should be the review on the cover of the box. <laughs> <laughs> because, look, look, this is not a traditional horror movie. Like, like say what you want. You guys can defend it in, in whatever way you want. It's not a traditional horror movie. But in the end, I, I, I really do believe this is a movie about everyone letting go of what has been lost. The ghost lets go, the living lets go. And, I, you know, talking about the ending, because that's where we're at here, I think it's really sad that in their last chance to connect, the mother and the daughter can't connect. They're in the same room at the same time, and they don't know it. I think that's very well set up in the clues we get about their relationship. You know, about the mother and her mother, and their ability to love or understand their children or whatever it is. But, like, they definitely create a disconnect. And also, you, you com- combine that with what Alice has gone through, you know, and whatever is happening with this, the neighbor couple and however that happened. But her approach to dealing with the things that she goes through informs that. And I, I love that this movie raises more questions than it answers and there's a lot going on. Um, I just don't know how much of that has to do with horror movies per se, but it's really rich and meaty. It's just not bloody. So I, I like the ending a lot um, in my third viewing. Whoever wants to go from there, uh, step on the other one and we'll edit it out. <laughs> God damn it. That's what you earned. That's what you yeah, earned. I, that's, yeah. that, that's why I should never, ever do that. All right. I will point my finger. Vic, what's your thoughts about the ending? <laughs> I think that the ending to this film is exceptional. I think it's, I think it's sad and, and mournful. I wouldn't describe it as a happy ending, even in the way, I mean, I think tonally it, sh- it shares 
a little bit of DNA with the orphanage, but it's even less tragic than that though, because the girl's already dead. Exactly. You go from that shocking shot of the cell phone video with the, the body sort of lunging at the camera. You get this denouement and these, these sort of sweet moments, bittersweet moments of misconnection and the, but the idea that the family's moving on, but I really can't say enough about then going back and seeing all the footage and seeing the ghost in the other corners of the, of the screen where you weren't looking. I mean, it's, there's, there's just this horrifying suggestion of the things that might be lurking in every photo you've taken. I mean, the notion of photography catching things is not something new. I mean, you think about I think the, the grudge or the ring or shutter. I mean, there's a, there's a variety of films that touch on that. Well, the opening sequence of this film. Exactly. Yeah. But that's, but it feels like those things are sort of front and center. The, the film directs your attention in ways that make that reveal more powerful, but it doesn't feel manipulative in the way that it does. Like Rich was saying with, with other movies where they're really pointing you in one direction so that you're not looking in the other. I found that, that, that closing montage to be terrifying so that when the movie was over, that was really in equal parts with the emotion and the loss and the reconciliation. I, I was equally terrified and, and really unsettled by this film. I may be repeating myself a bit here, but I do think there is something that is perhaps a little cute, but also poetic in a nice way, which is to remember that in the closing moments of this film, when they reveal the images, the images are being revealed to us and they're not being revealed to the family. And ultimately, I think that this is a story about a girl who just wanted her family to see her. And it does make for a really heartbreaking ending that the final reveal is that she was there the entire time and they couldn't see her. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. That's almost playing like the, the strength of the weakness of the ghost is that it's sad, almost back to uh, a ghost story. Um, in, in that like the ghost wants to, connect to those that it loves, but it it's limited in its capacity to do so. This is kind of a spiritual cousin to Rich's uh, doomed nominee <laughs> in that regard. All right. Well, I will say that we have two directors named uh, Anderson in The Sinister 16. Uh, Joel Anderson, of course, is the director of this film, and then Brad Anderson directed Session 9. I like these weird little... Um, Trivia facts, I'll throw them out here and there. But uh, the tomato meter on um, RottenTomatoes.com, the critics have a 94% on this movie, and audiences are 63. And to be honest, that doesn't surprise me. It really doesn't. I'm not calling that a criticism of the movie in my eyes, but kind of makes sense. So let's talk about its uh, opposition, which is our number 18 seed. The Amityville Horror. <laughs> guys, wait, guys, I'm, I'm really sorry. I got to take a piss before we do this. Oh, just piss your pants. Tempting. There's a, there's a litter box in the corner. <laughs> All right. Give me 10 seconds. Sorry. 
So I'm a little bit worried for Lake Mungo because it's facing an all-time classic of cinema, and I am talking about the Amityville Horror. Wow, what a movie. I mean, it's a full-spectrum entertainment experience. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's got a little bit of everything. Uh, Pick your poison. I'm going to say for my highlight sequence... The scene when the wannabe wacky psychic lady, her boyfriend, and the couple start tearing into uh, that wall in the basement. And the psychic lady kind of gets possessed, sort of. And you feel like, as an audience, oh my god, holy shit, we're going to learn a lot right now. Things are getting crazy. And absolutely nothing comes of it. Like, the characters disappear, other than the couple. Like, the psychic lady and her boyfriend disappear. We never see anything inside the secret room except bricks that are uh, painted red. It's almost like the whole scene never happened. But at the time, wow, we think this sequence is going somewhere great. I'm just going to pull that on my ass. But I, I, I found that a really intense scene. So there you go. Rich, what's your scene? This is the passage to hell, right? Mm-hmm. Good dialogue there. She really is like, she's like operating uh, at a high level in that scene. I love that chick. I, I love her, like, ditzy, goofy, eccentric weirdness. I really like her. Go ahead, Vic. She is all in, and she would be right at home in uh, uh, The Haunting of Hell House. This movie has a little bit of every other movie. I think we I said that at the time. Like, this movie feels like all the other movies mashed together. Yep. Yeah, clearly it's sort of a greatest hits tape of previous Haunted House movies and books and stories. It really does its damnedest to cram everything in somewhere. I, I find that endearing. I think this is an awkwardly lovable movie for sure. So, Vic, what's your choice for highlight sequence? I am going to go with the trapped babysitter in the closet. I don't know if it was Someone. the night brace that got me. That <laughs> she has the thing in her in her teeth that her braces in because I had one of those when I was a kid. That really got me, but her performance in that scene is really good. And I, I mean, I think she doesn't. She have like bloody fingers by oh, the yeah. end of it because she's been banging on the door, which which sort of harkens back to the dog, which has bloody paws from clawing at the at the wall in the in the basement. Which is which is a, an, an uncomfortable beat in its own right. The the dog, not to not to steer away from yours. Oh, no, it's all right. It, it made me cringe a little bit, like the idea that the dog was like digging its claws down. Just another mildly horrifying detail in a movie filled with them. But I just found that babysitter sequence, particularly being able to juxtapose it with the daughter right on the other side. And they do, I think the sequence sort of ends with a close-up on the daughter's eyes as she's listening to this terrified babysitter bang on the door for like two hours, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's really, like, it's kind of fucking scary. I like it. The, they actually do an impressive version of it in the, the remake. We haven't talked about the remake much, which I didn't hate. I think the, the remake is is certainly deeply flawed, but it does do some sequences well. And I thought their take on that scene was very good, but not as good as this one. This one's really effective. This is a tough movie to choose highlights and lowlights because a lot of them are both at the same time. 
I picked the scene where the money from the caterer disappears. Uh, <laughs> and I'm only being a little facetious. Like it, that scene was definitely memorable because of the near the com- the comical dialogue between James Brolin and the and the caterer who, who's upset with him for not paying the the bills at the wedding. Um, yeah, where he he doesn't want him to write him a check. In his defense, the check bounces. I'm just saying. It does. It does bounce. It somehow captures the, on a low-key level, captures the absolute bizarrity that they they are trying to weave together in this film of day-to-day domestic life and this possession, you know, haunted house film. And I'm going to, I'm going to rip a little bit off a point that I read when reading up on this movie that I actually thought was sort of an astute observation and I'd be interested to go back and see if it really holds up the more you analyze it, because they're right in looking back at it that that it is a focal point and it's something that, that comes up over and over again, um, not just here with the catering money, but that there are constantly dialogue mentions to financial matters throughout the entire course of the movie. From the very beginning, they're worried about how they're going to have to how they're going to pay the house. People are constantly reminding uh, James Brolin about like bills are having to be paid. Um, his partner is talking to him about how the, the IRS is calling him. People are talking about nickel and diming you to death. It's a constant stream of bill collectors. That, in a sense, it has a cousin in few films that are in our in our thirty two, and you know, The Shining is is one example yeah. where it's really a story frequently about a father figure who is being driven so mad by the daily stresses of modern life and the the pressures of of you know being a patriarch or being burdened with with children or or spouses that they don't want that that is the demon showing up in their life is really just the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of turning them into a raving lunatic the fact that they make such a big deal about the catering money in the light of that observation actually sort of makes sense all of a sudden well, I would argue that that's a, a theme of haunted house movies in general. In the quest to isolate your characters in the house, how do you prevent them from leaving? One of the, the easiest ways to do it is we've got all our money in this house. Mm-hmm. We can't afford to go anywhere else. And that does, that is, as a theme, that's something that connects with an awful lot of your audience is people that, look, just for me, if we had to leave our house, like I, I can't rent an apartment and pay a fucking mortgage. Like I don't want to have to declare bankruptcy to get out of my loans that I have or whatever. That's a very commonplace anxiety that people have that when you introduce a supernatural element can suddenly get dialed up to 11. I'm surprised that Rich didn't mention it. I thought he was going to have even uh, let's scare Jessica to death because yeah. like uh, that was very much about like people that were – financially living on a shoestring and, you know, hoping that they might be able to sell enough furniture from the house that they bought to, to get by, to buy food for the next month. So yeah, I definitely see the, the connective tissue here in the, in the genre. Vic, I just want you to know that when your son uh, really develops his pig demon best friends 
and it's tearing your house apart and making the walls bleed, that uh, you're more than welcome to come stay with us. You don't have to rent an apartment. I appreciate that. That's actually our dog, Max, and we're doing okay. That's good to hear, guys. That's yeah. good to hear. I'm glad that Vic has options when, when things go. It's a go. family show. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's very heartwarming at the end of the day. We're all here for each other. Let's let's get on to the low light sequences. We have many options for low lights in this film. However, I've come to accept this movie on its own terms uh, with open arms. So nothing really dis- diminishes my enjoyment of the movie. I guess the idea here is, though, was there anything kind of tedious or not interesting? All I can come up with right now, again, admitting that like a lot of the movie is not objectively good, I can just say that the kids really suck in this movie. They pretty yeah. much... <laughs> Both from a performance uh, and a script level, <laughs> they just don't contribute much. Luckily, they pretty much disappear for the entire middle of the movie, uh, but they're totally anonymous and interchangeable. Again, the one exception being the little girl that we talked about earlier, where she's just ignoring her babysitter uh, screaming in the closet for an hour. That kid is okay. She has her moments. But generally speaking, the kids add nothing to this movie, not even unintentional comedy, which feels kind of unusual in in the subgenre, especially with these haunted house movies. I wouldn't be handing out Oscars to the little girls in Paranormal Activity 3, but the kids in in this movie are just total non-entities. Even the little boy who gets his fingers mashed in in the falling window by the way, what was up with that? Everyone's amazed that <laughs> he didn't break a single bone. So are we to believe that the evil forces took it easy on him? That's the takeaway? I, I don't know. I, I love the extraordinarily Baroque mythology that they begin peeling back layers of here. It's totally forgettable an hour later. But there's a lot going on in this fucking house, like going way beyond the recent past. But the feeling I do not get is that the evil would take it easy on anyone. So I think it's a weird choice for the movie to highlight the fact that the kids' fingers were not broken when the window drops on them. So that's that's kind of my, my choice, is that the, these are the most undistinguished kids in any of the Haunted House movies that we've uh, looked at. No, I agree with you 100%. Oftentimes I think when I'm watching these movies that I wish the kids would go away. <laughs> and then in this movie I was also similarly almost frustrated by their lack of presence and just confused. Yeah. I mentioned – in the, the previous episode that I actually spent the first third of the movie not understanding that they were even her kids. I thought they were the neighbor's kids. They're that poorly defined. <laughs> yeah. I think I think this is really a comment on parenting in the 70s. <laughs> maybe. maybe. Um, I went with a different character. I know that you guys have a real strong fondness for, for Father Delaney. For me, for some reason, that scene in the church where he's where he's screaming at the at the demon, and we're seeing the angel statue being shaken by a PA until it <laughs> until like the pieces fall off of it, only to have it revealed, you know, at the end that like that like the angel's is fine there, and then he's just like I'm blind, 
Like, I don't know. We talked about this before that like the timeline weirdly reveals this movie to not be quite as derivative as it feels like it is. Yep. But surely the the Exorcist happened before this, right? This is this is post Exorcist. Yeah. In terms yes, of what it is. is. Yeah, Exorcist yeah. was seventy three. So yeah. Good heavens! I was going to say seventy six. My goodness. You guys sold me on a couple of the the story turns of Father Delaney, and certainly the fact that his story just ends very in a very sad way that everyone else gets away, and he's just been absolutely tormented and mutilated by the end of the movie. Yeah, he's a something, he's a broken down, pathetic shell of himself. Something about this scene and just my general dislike of seeing. Uh, religious figures scream at invisible demons. Uh, this was a pretty poor and uninteresting offender of that trope. And so it was a low light for me. Yeah, I actually didn't mind that scene at all, but I can't tell you you're crazy because it is ridiculous and over the top. All right, Vic, what's your uh, what's your reaction to all this and your own nominee? Jesus Christ, John, that scene didn't bother you. That was That was my scene as well, but I had a backup. Huh? So yeah, that scene is bonkers, and is. Rod, I, I'm not really sure what Rod Steiger's doing there, but boy, is he committed! But yeah, that's and what I'm saying. I kind of like that, and I love like the 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 dude, his second in command. Like he gives him a look like a couple of times, but even <laughs> early on, he's like, okay. What is he doing? He's getting a little too into this, and I just love that. That's it, right? Is it like if you took the soundtrack out of that and stopped cutting to the statue that's cracking above him, it's just a guy going nuts on yeah. an altar in an empty church. Like yeah. It, it's fucking nuts. Anyways. I love that. No, so I will simply offer as a as a minor backup note to that, I know I mentioned it before, the audio of the non-vomiting is like yeah. nothing I've ever heard. Yeah, I'm glad you brought I, that up. I'm glad. I'm glad. So to speak. Glad. So to speak. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's wow. It just I I feel like if you're if you're a, a a connoisseur of horror films, you've heard a lot of vomiting. It's just something that happens a lot. If it's Craig T. Nelson vomiting up a, a some kind of crazy worm monster and Poltergeist Two, or anyone seen never... the Perfection on Netflix? They have some great vomiting in that movie. In uh, what? The Perfection on, oh, on Netflix. Oh yes, yes. I will make a point to not check that out. But I like this, that movie. It's have, it's minor, but it's it's got some good moments. I have never heard retching like this. And I myself have had some pretty horrendous vomiting explosions. But, yeah, that's my footnote mm-hmm. there for uh, low lights is vomiting none. I actually really like that whole sequence because she comes in all like, I am so cheery and excited to see you all. And then she's just like, oh, my God, I've got to die. <laughs> She has to leave, and she's still puking, like, you know, several streets down the road. I appreciate the fact that, like, any remotely holy person that comes into this house, they they don't even, like, get tormented while they're there, 
they're just kind of like <laughs> marked by it. And especially, I mean, poor Rod Steiger. All he does is go in there once and his entire life unravels. Like he, he's, he becomes this, you know, crippled, sad, doomed figure. I'm on board with the pathos of that. I really am. This is one of the few haunted houses that is very distinctly defined. This house is haunted. The things that are haunting it are are trapped in this location. And yet it seems to reach out in all these weird ways. Like there are tentacles of it that follow the nun out of the house and that, you know, Rod Steiger can't answer the fucking phone. Yeah. Like his throat (laughs) contracting. This movie has more like coughing and gagging than I feel like I've seen in a haunted house movie ever. One hundred percent, and I think that that's like very cool and and interesting. And even the changeling, I will point out, had that element where that police detective, you know, crashes his car after going to the house. The dude from Battlestar Galactica, I think his name is John Calicos or something, the actor. But yeah. I mean, there is somewhat of a tradition of these forces having tendrils that extend beyond the house and can just doom anyone that's uh, set foot inside their door. And I think that that opens it up and it's definitely scary and disturbing and might not make a lot of sense in traditional terms in terms of like, you know, well, what is a ghost and what its sphere of influence should be. But that's one of the things I like about like sort of the demon and stuff is that, well, maybe, you know, maybe they are, they are more powerful than that. It raises a question about this movie. One of the things that I really like about it is that the nature of the haunting is left pretty vague. There's a lot of bad stuff that happened here, but they they don't really nail it down in a very specific way. Well, yeah, it's not about the guy, the gunman, um, or the victims of the gunman. Like, that whole family, they're they're not on the stage. They're not, like, their ghosts are are irrelevant. It goes way farther back than that. It's a, I mean, it is a demon movie, yep. right? It's, yep. It is a, which is a demon terrorizing this house that was apparently once summoned by a satanic worshiper. Yes. All right. Well, I, I really like this movie and I mean, we could do a one-off of this movie and I think it would be howlingly funny and amazing. <laughs> uh, but it's probably, it, it would definitely be outside of the, the tournament because it's probably going down, but let's talk about the ending. I think this ending is awesome in levels that, yeah, may not pertain to quality of cinema. <laughs> I just love that there's a van and everyone's in it and they just suddenly realize the dog is not here. And so they slam on the brakes and they just leave it in the middle of the street. And James Pullen runs back to get the dog. And he somehow falls through the floor and he's in some kind of like black tar, which I guess is sort of the same goo that we saw bubbling up from the toilets earlier. Ectoplasm, if you will. The passage to hell, I believe, isn't it? Doesn't he fall into the the same room where the passage to hell was was found by the psychic lady earlier? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think so. But But it's filled with the same goo that was in the toilets, which suggests that the toilets might also be a passage to hell. As they often are. <laughs> yeah. 
are also cursed. <laughs> Based on the shit my cat just took, her, her litter box might also be a passage to hell. <laughs> Poor Vec has been trying to do a podcast for the last hour with uh, the, the sweet fragrance of cat shit in his nose. So that, that's, that's hell right there. The dog actually comes and saves him, and but 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 what I love actually, I think this is like legitimately good, is the dog doesn't recognize him at first because this is true. I mean, if you if you're wearing weird shit and you're not recognizable, an animal might not uh, know it's you, and he's covered in this black slime, and the dog starts attacking him, and and he has to use his voice to uh, remind uh, the dog that it's, it's him. And then the dog uh, recognizes him and pulls him out of, of this pit, this well or whatever it is. Like, uh, yeah, one of the things that, you know, goes on earlier is that we get this notion that there's a well here and the well must be closed or something. And nothing happens in this movie to resolve that. But I think it's in Amityville 2 or 3 or both of them. We come back to the idea of the well. They're seeding the field, at least. But anyway, uh, we get the moment where he runs back on the rainy street. It's, of course, it's raining cats and dogs. It's pouring, and everyone's flipping out in the van waiting for him. And he runs down the street with the dog clutched in his to his chest. And everyone's smiling and happy. And he jumps back in the van, and they leave. And, and that's it. The house just... Let him go away. We could get into, well, what was the house's end game, and why did it play it this way, and why did it basically just, like, scare them out of the house if it really wanted their souls? Like, it doesn't It doesn't make sense at all. But uh, maybe you guys have a have an interpretation that, that makes it all work. But that's all I have, so uh, that's my interpretation of the ending. John, legit question. Do you think that your bunny would pull you out of the pit of hell. Absolutely not. Yeah. I just just checking. My interpretation is that the reason that this doesn't make a lot of sense is because the Lutzes concocted this for money. It's not a real story. And so the the, the book is slightly the, the movie is slightly beholden to the book and the book is slightly beholden to the bullshit that these people came up with for it. That's it. That's all I got. I can't, I can't believe you went back to the dock. I can't believe it. It's the, it's the most preposterous thing. Rich, you're a dog owner. Help me out. I'm just curious if you feel the same way. If there was blood leaking out of the walls of my house and I had successfully gotten my children out uh, after maybe murdering them with an axe, I don't think I would go back for Max. I hope he can't hear me. He's got good ears. I don't know. Rich, yeah. what do you think? I wouldn't go back for my dog. You would not go back for George Bailey. And, and yeah, like, a, like a, a better dog, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my dog would have been the first one out of the house. That's the difference. <laughs> he would have left us for dead a week before any of this happened. He was not pawing at the wall to the gate to no, hell. That's way too much work. Yeah. But the house lets him come back. The house ends up being completely inept after it, like, totally blinded a priest that was in there for, like, ten minutes earlier. And, like, its power over that priest is extreme. And then, honestly, it does almost nothing to the family that was living there for 20 days or 25 days or whatever it was. 
it seemed to take joy in in tormenting them. I did get the feeling, even reviewing the film again, the presence, whatever it is, Jody wanted them there. It, it, it wanted the priest out, but it wanted them there to torment it, torment them. Well, it, it, it wanted. It probably wanted him to kill them, right? Like it had the guy who looked just exactly like him, which is a pretty bizarre, inexplicable plot element. Is that he's the dead ringer for the guy who killed his family the last time? It's not that inexplicable, John. I look like that guy now. I mean, <laughs> that and the and the axe the scene where he's trying to murder the axe murder his children with the axe is are both weirdly evocative of the shining which i mm-hmm. i believe we established last time came out at the same year or same time very close to each other uh if memory serves me correctly yeah there's uh, that moment where the kids are terrified and yeah and he's axing uh through the door i in trying to process this ending the note that i made was just to to paraphrase an, an early episode of The Simpsons, where they said, where they're questioning the moral, and they said, there is no moral. It's just a bunch of stuff that happened. But it yep. certainly was a memorable few days. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Simpsons, for bringing some order and uh, rationality to this conversation. <laughs> it's a pretty senseless film. It's hilariously ludicrous the more you look at it. But it is kind of just a, it's a curiosity piece, this movie, but that was such a weirdly influential hit at the same time. It's a mainstream movie. That's what makes it such a weird uh, case study. I'm scrolling through our round two films. I think this is by far the film with the strongest religious presence. Not many of the films remaining involve a lot of priests or nuns. A general sense of religious significance to the malignant forces that are impacting our haunted houses. Having a priest that's involved is one thing, but having your one of your one of your primary characters and her her religious background and the way that her husband doesn't connect with her religious background. Having that be an entire character subplot is unusual in in general for these films, but especially in this uh, selection that we have. There's an implied backstory, which I found interesting, is that obviously she's had these children uh, in a previous relationship, if if not marriage. And the idea is that Father Delaney uh, helped her in the past. One must assume there could be a connection. There, she clings to the church, but this movie is like, if nothing else, it's a stinging indictment of the support that the church might give you because it gives her zero support. You know, obviously, Father Delaney gets some excuses. It was kind of funny that I know the phone doesn't work, but these characters really can't connect at any point after, after he shows up there that day and has this experience. He's not able to send any kind of message to them. It's kind of ludicrous. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's tie a bow on this. Any other thoughts on the ending of Amityville horror? If this film does go away, it'll be kind of a shame. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a strong consideration for bonus content down the road because I agree it it does deserve a little more examination. It's among the films that are going to be dismissed, I think, at this point. 
it's got the strongest cultural impact. Yeah. And that there's a there's a reason for that. And it's not just the book and it's not just the based on a true story. I think it has a lot to do with this movie. This movie deserves a deep dive, you know, just you know, based on the book and its influence on cinema and the amazing little rabbit holes that the movie offers you with its almost vignette nature. Like, so much happens in this movie that doesn't pay off, but they just keep throwing shit at the audience that is, like, bizarre and weird. And we didn't even talk about the images of the ghost. Uh, I alluded to it in the open of our show, like, where you just see this, like, these glowing eyes and these sort of weirdly animated, superimposed ghosty things that this um, this movie throws at you. It's a it's a treasure tra- chest of bizarrity. So, yeah, maybe uh, this will be our first, uh, if you want to throw a couple bucks at it, we'll, we'll give you a little special extra episode. I think it, it's worth that, and I think we'll have a ton of fun looking at it, if in fact we do. But uh, it's time to vote, fellas, and um, I'm going to cast my vote for Lake Mungo. Another walkover for the heavyweight contenders in our tournament. I'm not totally sure that I want this movie to go that much further, as I've kind of implied. It's fascinating, but uh, yeah, I just don't necessarily see it as a horror movie by most conventional measures. But I do want to delve more deeply and dredge the depths of Lake Mungo. I'm just not sure it's a contender for greatest horror movie of all time. Uh, In terms of artistry, this is uh, a slam dunk win over Amityville, though. Mungo for the win. Not a single jump scare directors out there, uh, but it is the superior superior film. Points for that. Vic, cast your vote. I will also cast my vote for Lake Mungo while while not shitting on it as a potential future candidate. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, uh, Rich. Look, I love true die-in-the-wool horror movies with lots of scares and and monsters and and blood and violence and terror. But Lake Mungo is a real sweet spot for me of combining something that goes a little bit deeper than, than most of those films do while still keeping that chill factor. I really enjoyed Amityville Horror. I look forward to revisiting it on my own, but my vote goes to Lake Mungo. Boom. It's a sweep. It's unanimous. Amityville, it's been fun. We'll see you again soon. Lake Mungo, I think we're going to try to unravel your mysteries in the weeks and months ahead. And I do, honestly, I look forward to that. So, hope everyone's enjoyed the show. We'll be back soon. And be safe, everyone. Whatever is going on when you actually listen to this, take good care. Adios. Adios.